You're listening to For the Lore, the podcast that delves in the craft of our favorite games, whether lore, gameplay, or game design. Each week, Roger is joined by Joe and Vince. Welcome to For the Lore, this is Roger coming to you on Tuesday, the 26th of April, and we're going to talk about packs, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff as well, too, the trailing from a couple of weeks ago, but uh, but this actually, there was some cool news that came out of, out of packs. The most exciting for me was Pyre. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I just Hell thought that yeah. was the coolest goddamn thing ever, and of course, we love their game, so it comes as no surprise, but Vince, why don't you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, in typical Supergiant Games fashion, uh, the company that brought you Bastion and Transistor, they have my money with a minute and a half trailer. Yep. Because as evidenced by the previous two games, the music alone will sell it. But then also like the cool art style and looks to be fun gameplay is, uh, yeah, I'm all in. Uh, it's supposed to be coming out next year. We don't know a whole heck of a lot about the story at this point, but... I think we know more going into this than we did the last two games, at least. Uh, you're playing a band of exiles. So, you know Why they've been exiled, where they've been exiled from, isn't particularly clear at this point. But they're in this sort of purgatory realm with exiles from other societies. And the, one of the reasons that they've been exiled is, gasp, they know how to read. And they you know, use these books to learn about these cosmic rituals tied to stars and constellations and weird shit that well when they say ritual they basically mean a game of capture the flag <laughs> and that's what our gameplay is here it's this weird sport type thing but i love it I, I, yeah there's, there's actually more to it and you you i don't know if you saw that there was actually um gameplay available like at 20 Pax. minute mm -hmm. and it's not the exiles themselves that can read. It's you as the player character who has. Oh. So what winds up happening is you are banished and you are saved by this group. And what winds up happening is they have this collection of books. They Got don't know it. how to read. So they're like, please read this book and, and, and impart knowledge upon us. And when you read, you accidentally send them into these realms that are opened up inside of these books. But while you're doing it, all these books are connected to the same realm other folks are doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, sort of play there. And I thought, I thought it was really, really cool. And one of the things I really like here is that they wanted, you know, your success or failure to have consequence. And they can't do that if it's a traditional game where if you lose, you die. So that's why they have it as this kind of sports analog where you can win or you can lose and there will be consequences for that moving on. If you win, hey, your team gets better. If you lose, you have to deal with, you know, the emotional impact of not just losing a game, but, you know, losing your hope at freedom and a better life and, and all kinds of stuff. And, and they're talking about how there's, you know, conversations and interactions you have with the other characters on your team and how there's an actual stat in the game called hope. Which, in addition to having story-driven elements of, you know, how the characters act and how they react, it's also going to increase their effectiveness in the rituals. You know, the the more hopeful they are, the more uh, motivated they are, the better they're going to play on the field. It's 
it's brilliant way of melding the gameplay and the story, but we really shouldn't expect anything else from Supergiant at this point. I really like the thing about the reading because it, it's one of those things where we've seen it in different stories before kind of thing, but it also has a real world tie as well. This is still happening in different parts of the world now in 2016 where cultures or people or women mm-hmm. aren't allowed to read. So this idea of that being a primary aspect of this game, I found incredibly compelling. I, I thought that was very cool. And I like this capture the flag kind of gameplay thing that they got going on just because it's so original for this type of game. So, and I like that. It, it's nice to have a fun twist instead of the same old, same old kind of thing. Yeah, I, I'm at this point where I'm fairly confident Supergiant can do no wrong. With like, their current staff, I agree. Yeah, so I'm I'm all in. I also thought it was interesting because it, it was like the sports analogy is really, really apt. Uh, it just, it struck me as almost like, um, there's a game I play called Guild Ball. It's a soccer kind of game. And it was very much like that, where you choose one thing, activate it, you take your actions, but you set up like defenses and things like that as well. And it was very, very cool. And I thought that was the way that they talked about auras and how they project was a very interesting mechanic on top of having to essentially put the ball into the goal or get the ball with yourself into the goal. I was really pleased with everything I saw just from that alone. It seemed simple but complex all at the same time. I love the kind of visual novel thing that they had going on, too, in the manner in which you were reading the quest and what people were saying. Mm -hmm. It kind of had a Guild Wars 2 feel about it as well, too. I I really dug it. The art style was spectacular. Talking dogs, hey, why not? (laughs) Of course, yeah. (laughs) I'm anticipating in a year or so, I'm going to get another picture from Tart with the freaking vinyl soundtrack from it just to rub it in. Uh, yeah, that'll happen. Guaranteed. Because <laughs> she sent me the one of Transistor. I was like, oh, damn it. <laughs> I'm very happy for you, dear. <laughs> but I really would have liked to do <laughs> just a tiny little bit. Yes. <laughs> All right. Anything else, Empire? I want it. Give yeah, me. Fair enough. Did you guys look at the footage for Elder Scrolls Legends, the card game? No. A little bit. It, I like it because it is... Let me, let, me, let me put it this way. I didn't look at it on purpose. <laughs> All right. Because I don't want another card game in my life right now. This is true. This is definitely true. But I'm, I'm just down to Hex now. I have barely touched Hearthstone except to get the free packs. It's Hex. Plus, speaking of which, Hex today came out with their fourth pack, mm-hmm. Primal Dawn. I bought a crap load of packs. <laughs> I haven't opened them yet, but I had I had a whole bunch of gold that I've been saving from doing the Frost Ring Arena over and over and over again. So I just bought a crap load of packs. So, later so it, tonight, it can't be a coincidence that Primal Dawn and Old Gods came out at the same time, can it? Oh, it can't be. No, no. My I I have no problems giving money to Hex to Cryptozoic to buy cards for Hex, but I'm not doing that for for Hearthstone. But uh, but yeah, there was actually. I'm kind of string here, but just for a minute, okay, bear. <laughs> there was a crap load said for um, for this big, massive patch for Hex. There was an actual stream with Corey Jones uh, this morning as well, where he talked about the future of Hex, what they're doing. the The next adventure zone is going to be like twice as big as oh what my God. the one is. So like there's a lot of amazing stuff going on with Hex right now. So if you're not playing, people get on it. It's on Steam now too, so it made it even easier. Anyways, back to Elder Scrolls Legends. 
I really dig it because it is doing something a little different where it's operating using lanes, they call it, which made me think, oh, damn it, what was the name of the one a while back that I was playing? Actually, while I'm talking, I'm going to just pull the goddamn thing up. I still have it on my iPad. But instead of the typical Magic the Gathering and Hex type of setting, wherein you, you know, you, you just put all your guys out as you would and you you get to choose who's attacking what, although that's more Hearthstone. This is, you're putting it in your cards in lanes and then you're deciding if you are um, attacking the people in the lane in front of you or the champion. So I really dig that. That's something that was in this other one. It's uh, Might and Magic, was it? Oh, that one that we played. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is Might and Magic. Yeah, it's coming up now. I can't, Duel of Champions, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, I really, yeah, Duel of Champions, I really... That game was fun as hell. ...really loved it because it was a different take on card games. And I liked the the lanes and how that worked for a card game. So this uses that. And then it's got a whole bunch of different obvious Elder Scrolls references and stuff like that. The art on the cards, spectacular. UI looks slick as hell. So I really am looking forward to messing around with that game for sure uh vince let it die let it die oh my god <laughs> this is of course such a vince game <laughs> it's the latest uh from grasshopper manufacturer and development rock star suda 51 uh the guys that brought you no more heroes killer seven lollipop chainsaw and it's his weird ass take on dark souls it's really interesting, let's <laughs> put it that way. I mean, it's in typical Suda style. It's completely over the top, both in tone and graphics and violence and you name it. But interesting, though, it's actually going to be a free-to-play game. And they're saying it has kind of some roguelike sort of maybe don't quite call it that elements where the levels are procedurally generated uh, there's, of course, high levels of difficulty. You have to master the mechanics. But unlike, you know, the Souls games, there's tons of loot that are going to affect the way you play. There's probably not going to be one or two, you know, go-to weapons that everyone's going to have. The story itself, they're keeping it very tight under wraps. But the cool thing here for me is that it's... They call it asymmetrical multiplayer, but I don't think that's quite the right way to describe it. But in... That was a buzzword this year. Yeah. Anybody who's played Dark Souls, you know, is aware that, you know, if you're playing it online, you you have the the ghosts of other players that you can see running through the world or, you you know, there's the co-op and PvP elements where, you know, another character can cross over into your world. What they've done here is similar but very unique that when a player dies in the game, that player character creates a ghost that you can then run into and have to fight as an enemy with their weapons, their armor, their skills, which I don't know. That's just really cool to me. And I, I, I really want to see that in action. Is this the one with the, the, the skateboarding Reaper Reaper? on the skateboard? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the skateboarding 3D that? glass wearing Grim Reaper. It, it was very stylish. I will give it that. <laughs> Definitely very stylish. 
All right. How about a uh, a girl, a dog, and some zombies? Joe? This is a very interesting one for me, and it's mostly because zombie apocalypse games are something that we have just a wide variety of at this point. It's a saturated market. So trying to do something new and different in there is, one, a dangerous endeavor, and two, you're competing against that saturation, which is ballsy. I'll give I'll give credit there. So uh, zero bite here. <laughs> bite. Uh, it made a game about a girl and a dog who take it, the game takes place far after the apocalypse has already happened. So this is well and in, well into the future after everybody's already become zombies, and it's got the sort of cliche hook where you're an amnesiac, and you and your dog who is going to be treated as a full fledged character. That's integral to your story and recovering your past and figuring out what's going on around you uh, and also will be able to level up and, and be sent to, to do special things. Everything's woven together in an open world environment to sort of just let you kind of go and experience what happens. And I think that's kind of cool. Uh, the gameplay we saw is very, very rough. It's very early. Like, here's some concepts of movement. Here's maybe what an axe swing looks like. The dog can suddenly teleport because it's still really like pre 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 alpha, but it's I'm I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued to see what they do with it because an open world game that you're discovering and piecing together your own story, where they're not just making your companion a throwaway companion, but an integral part of that story itself. I'm in. I want to see what they do. I thought it was interesting, but again, it's still fairly early. They're they're doing. It sounds like they're going to be doing interesting things to the point of even perhaps allowing you to customize your dog, so that you're even using a breed that is maybe like what you actually own if you have mm-hmm. a dog kind of thing, so that you are more emotionally attached to it just to begin with. The fact that you can switch between the two, whether you want to play the girl or the dog, and you're going to get different things to do based on which one you do. And again, there's a lot of cool things. The only thing that kind of irked is a little strong, but is that damn amnesia again? It's a cliche, yeah. It's, 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 uh, and I really wish that they would have found a more imaginative well, way of doing it. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. I wish there was a more imaginative way, but at the end of the uh, end of the day, like I understand their goal, right? They want the player to be able to imprint upon the character and that's really hard to do when you're trying to present a story of the character. And the easiest way to get you emotionally involved, especially with a character who's emotionally involved with this this companion, this dog, who apparently will also be playable too, not just not just a companion. I was just looking over some notes here. It will also be you can switch to it and play as the dog. Go Far figure. too many games miss that important bullet point in the design document: playable dog. That's a big one, man. People people go bonkers for that. But it's an easy way to kind of bridge that gap quickly, especially in a game where you don't have a clear set path. Like the idea that it's not going to be linear at all sort of presents I do intro, like that. that obstacle, right? Yeah, it, it is nice in that regard. You can kind of wander around and figure shit out on your own. Yeah, there was a bunch of VR stuff, obviously, the the really ramping up to that. There's actually going to be a VR con coming up, too. Not too long. I don't know exactly when, but uh, I'm going to be checking on that as well. Not that you guys care, but very cool. This could be the most weird con ever because 
You know, it's going to be funny. It's not going to be a con. You you could hold the con in just a big room with no no fancy lights. You know, no. everybody's going to have VR head. They'll all have the mark around. Their- <laughs> I'll tell you, they should do they should do a VR convention where it's just like an empty room with a whole bunch of chairs and everything's in VR. That'd be the ultimate. That's awesome. They talked about one of the games that caught my eye that I just thought was interesting because it's again trying to figure out how to use this because a lot of devs are still working on that and it's uh faded the the silent oath and there's not a ton to the game as it stands now they're working on it but the person that wrote this article it was funny because they were saying how they really set up the room so that you really felt you were there as well with some fans and even some mist and stuff and some rain some fake rains because you are riding a horse you well, you're not riding on the horse but you're in charge of the horse, you got the reins, and then you're presumably your family is in the cart with you kind of thing, and then you look around and you can interact with them silently by moving your head or, or whatever kind of thing. But it was interesting because they were saying how in the situation they were because of everything that the game did right. And again, it's still it still comes off more as an experience than a game, but that's one of the things that they're doing a lot of work with, not just to come up with different technology and different ways of doing things that eventually will make it into full-fledged games, but also just that some of these small little experiences are justifiably going to be a ton of fun to, to play through and to be able to do that. And so the idea of riding this horse with this family and trying to avoid dangers as they present themselves was actually really quite cool. I, I thought it was an interesting idea, something that I would enjoy doing. Hmm. Friday the 13th, the game, Joe. Yeah, this is actually pretty interesting. Uh, I didn't even know this was a thing, really. Yeah, like, I heard of gorgeous, though. Yeah. Well, <sighs> they've been so tight-lipped about this, despite having, like, a very successful Kickstarter as well, which I think was kind of cool. Uh, but, oh, my God, this looks gorgeous. And they're bringing back, again, it's that as- asymmetrical multiplayer, uh, where the concept is eight players get together, one player plays as Jason Voorhees, and seven players are the counselors or the kids at the camp that are trying to survive and you can choose to help each other or go your separate ways and you have a unique experience to everybody else. Uh, what's really interesting to me, too, is one of the names attached to it, uh, which is Tom Savini. And mm-hmm. uh, that was an interesting choice because he's been involved in a lot of B-movie horror films. And so kind of that is really nifty to me. But, oh, my God, the the art style was gorgeous. Like, it's it's slightly stylized, not super hyper-realistic. Uh, but I like what we've seen so far just from the little tiny bits like Jason busting through a door with an axe, um, bashing somebody's head into bits with the door. It's going to be visceral. It's going to be gory. And one interesting thing, we've seen third party and we've seen from the perspective of a hunted player – we haven't seen from the perspective of Jason yet, and I'm really going to be intrigued to see what the player sees when they're playing as him. This is so cool because you can tell this is a developer that really cares about the franchise that they bought the rights to. It wasn't just, what can we make money off of? It's, I want to make a Friday the 13th game. Go out there, get the license, and we are going to do it. And it shows that that, that passion and just the unique take like you said of 
presenting that experience in a video game. If you had told me there's a Friday the 13th game coming out, this is probably the last thing I would have expected it to be. Mm-hmm. I think that except the, maybe some weird JRPG that <laughs> that would be the last thing. The um, it made me think of oh, damn it, what's the game recently where it was three on one? And it, well, there was uh, Evolve. Evolve, that's yeah. a four yeah. on one. Yeah. So I'm thinking that because of the popularity of that, that they kind of. Which was such a to... cool premise, it just didn't quite work out. Yeah, Evolve was a little bit different, though. Evolve was a little more running gunny, I guess. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, but the same premise of the multiples versus just the one kind of thing. So, I, yeah, that's where I thought, yeah, I can see where they might have gotten some inspiration there just to do it better. And this comes off as way better, way better. Well, the other, the other cool thing, did you guys uh, read up on the fear system? No. So not only is it going to be a multiplayer game where you're fighting for survival, but there is going to be a fear factor where the players uh, that are trying to survive are going to be affected uh, by how close Jason comes with they witness an atrocity, uh, what's going on around them, things like that. And it's going to make them ha- there's going to be in-game effects, right? Like they might be easier to spot or they might not be able to control their breathing when they're hiding under a bed, uh, things like that. And I think that was really, really cool because it's an extra thing for you to sort of add tension into the game as opposed to I just need to find like a hiding spot and just wait it out. No, you have to manage your fear levels. You have to you have to pick your hiding spots based off of what you can do with your own body. Like, I think that's a really cool idea because it makes you as a player a little more invested in what's happening with your character and the environment around you. I know I say this a lot, <laughs> but you want it in VR. You want it in VR. Everyone <laughs> with an HTC Vive with the ones playing this multiplayer online kind of thing. So you're in your space. And it made me think of that because of that paranormal activity video that I showed. Uh, I know oh, yeah, I yeah. showed uh, Joe. I know I showed you, Vince. But it was hysterical. People were freaking wigging out over <laughs> that. And I was thinking, imagine that now in this game where you have the atmosphere, you have the dark, you have the, the worrying about it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it would be brilliant in freaking multiplayer online VR. Oh, my God. That would be so much fun. So much fun. All right. What about Ruiner? Ruiner. Yeah, this was uh, an interesting one that I wasn't like I, I hadn't heard of actually until you linked it to me. It's supposed to be coming out later this year from uh, Kuba Stalinsky, who worked with uh, CD Projekt Red on all three of the Witcher games, as well as, you know, a couple other games out there. And he went, OK, I want to go do my own thing now. So he started up a game company to give us freaking awesome Shadowrun cyberpunk stuff (laughs) taking place in the year 2091 in a neon cyberpunk future built around. Well, VR has taken over society. It's the coolest thing, (laughs) but it's gone to the next level now where it makes its users can actually experience emotions and, you know, uh, obviously, I'm sure, Joe, you immediately thought of the same thing. This is exactly what Shadowrun does with the better than life system where you can experience, you know, things beyond your wildest imaginations. But it also builds up a black market of really sketchy stuff, you know, 
imagine VR fully immersive snuff films and murder simulators and all kinds of craziness. And this is kind of destroying society. So you as the player, you have you know this top of the line, new top spec VR gear and a hacker friend that is helping you take down the people responsible for, you know, all these terrible things. And it's cool. But as they say, this game is hard as hell. <laughs> Very few people at PAX actually made it through the demo. It's, you know, some cool, like, time-stopping, very tactical, but you also have to be really, really on top of your Twitch reflexes with shields and dashing and all this and that. But the fun thing about it is they've instituted a, what they call, tourist mode. Mm-hmm. It's not an easy or a hard, no. You're either playing the game or you're just there to visit. <laughs> it's kind of like a middle finger, but I can appreciate that. You know, this this Runer was one of those things that made me realize, among all the other things that we've talked about so far, that Souls-like, Rogue-like is going to be the buzzwords of this mm-hmm. year. Like, that's going to be the 2016 game scene. And I'm okay with that. Uh, in this case, it's very Souls-like in that regard. It's There's no difficulty settings. It's you do or you don't. But I like the fact that they put in the scrub. But I like I like the tourist mode thing because for like people like, and, and I don't say like this lightly. Us. Like I was going to say like Renee, like who doesn't want to put like thousands of hours into a game or can't, but really likes the visual stuff and likes the mm-hmm. story because she's really into like cyberpunk and Shadowrun just like you, I am. You can say like me. I won't take offense. No, I'm not going to say like you. <laughs> I don't true. know what you like. I don't. <laughs> We've only been talking about games for seven fucking years. You have no clue what I like. <laughs> Shh, I was trying to give you the benefit of the doubt. Whatever, scrub. <laughs> But no, it, it, I think that's cool that like they can then experience at least the story of the game so they don't have to worry about like, you know, my hands hurt today or they, they don't work quite well enough to to keep up with it. And then people like me who I would rather bash my head against it for eight hours at a time, I can go do that. And then if I ever give up, I can just switch over to tourist mode. It was gorgeous, too. For that oh, type God. of game, stylized? yeah, it was really stylized. I loved it. And normally that kind of style, if it's too simplistic, it's like, nah, I, again, I played enough of that when I was a teenager. I, I want something a little cool now. But that looked cool. I loved the style of it. Well, you have the cool like AR stuff of, you know, when the hacker is communicating with you, the, the stuff actually pops up on the screen with like little emojis. <laughs> like, I love it. <laughs> Did Joe, you mentioned this Metronomicon. Uh, I didn't actually look into it. It's a rhythm role-playing game. That's all I know. Yeah, it's really we- uh, so rhythm. Rhythm games have a special place in my heart. Oh, I know. Uh, it, it's really interesting because it's an RPG game with like DDR style controls. Or I think media. you just found Alicia's new favorite game. I, yeah, right. That's exactly <laughs> what I thought of. But it's kind of interesting because like these these invaders kind of crash to the planet and then like instead of having dungeons there's raves and so <laughs> you you adjust your party you control one of them at a time but you do combos by following the dance moves on the scroll down from the top and if you need to dodge from boulders that are coming down you switch to another character and you have your warriors you have your sword and boards you have your mages you have your clerics it's 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 really nifty it's it's not something I would put a whole ton of time into, but I think it's really kind of funny to start combining RPG elements with rhythm games again. Like we already did this with Crypt of the Necrodancer and a 
obviously the success of that has led them to let, let other developers go. That's a really cool idea. Let's expand on it. Let's see what else we can do with it. And to add the traditional RPG elements of leveling up, adventuring, clearing out dungeons, gathering gear, but while doing it to Electropop, I think that's kind of funny. And the other thing that really caught me about it was the fact that every single one of them has these weird, like, idle dance animations, whether it's like the typical, like, you know, white person lawnmower dance or yeah, the, per- the person's actually getting down and dirty. Like, it's really, really funny. Yeah, the bard is going to dance very differently than the paladin. <laughs> if yep. there ever was a crapper game, this is the one sitting on the crapper playing this. <laughs> At this point, every genre needs a rhythm game spinoff. I'm all for this. All right. Yes. Sold. Any parting thoughts on Bex? We got games this time around. What was the last time we actually had a bunch of new stuff to talk about with a PAX? Nope. What's what's? Ooh, ooh. Yeah, the the other thing I finally got to see uh, a lot of gameplay from uh, Necropolis, which made me very very. Oh happy. right. Oh. Yeah, because it's that's another roguelike Souls like uh, from Hairbrain Scheme, same people that brought a Shadowrun. Yeah. Uh, it looks absolutely ridiculous and gorgeous, and the stylized art is phenomenal. And the gameplay controls from everybody that was there, including one of my friends who actually went to PAX East and took it upon himself to text me as after he was done playing. It was like, oh, my God, the controls are tight. You need to play this game. Have you heard of it? I'm like, yes. (laughs) So it's it's another one that everything I'm seeing from it looks really, really good. And it also has a four player multiplayer, which I did not know. And it's going to be online and local co-op, which Hmm. is which is big. and I think that's kind of cool. And I didn't realize that the roguelike elements of it also extend down to as much as the potions as well. Like your potions will change from gameplay to gameplay. The dungeon is entirely designed to fuck with you. And I kind of like that. Awesome. <laughs> Did you guys see the ludicrous marketing push Overwatch had? Oh, the uh, cars. Which one? They had these uh, you know, ridiculous vehicles that they were using to ferry yes. people around from party to party. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the streamers I follow were in the Overwatch monster truck. Yes. Which they were on their way to the Twitch party, pulled out of the parking lot, and immediately hit a car. <laughs> and then apparently the next day, the Overwatch Lamborghini or whatever it was almost got into an accident as well. The Tracer one, yeah, yeah, and then they had the uh, the Diva one, which was like was a couple of like, Doom, Doom buggy kind of things. Yeah, they were the Doom buggies, but apparently, like, they didn't really go anywhere because people who were driving <laughs> them were like, "Listen, that all stuff kind of went really weird. We're just gonna kind of chill. You want to you want to come sit in it? Okay, we can sit there. <laughs> Let's put it in neutral and rev the engine." <laughs> yeah, I saw the cars and I went, "Holy crap in hell!" You can tell who has the money here. Yeah, clearly, because wow. <laughs> Anyways, okay, let's move on then. One of the games that I wanted to talk about last week, actually, but we didn't get a chance, was Stories, The Path of Destinies. And we've gotten more news since then. And, Joe, I know you went hog wild researching this as well, so I'll let you take it. But just to say, like, I don't know if initially you were as interested in it as I was or if it took you the research till you were. I'm assuming you are. But yes, it was Almost immediate for me when I saw the trailer and I saw I read a little bit more about the stories and how it worked. It just looks like a phenomenal game. It's one of those games where the concept seemed good, but it was and I and I can go back and we can look at the other podcasts. And I know I said this. I was going to reserve judgment until the game was released. And the only reason I said that is because it was an ambitious goal of what they wanted to do, which was create a choose your own adventure game. 
with a very deep choice system that actually affects your gameplay. And it's one of those things where giving players agency over the story is really difficult sometimes because you have an idea of where you want it to go, but you know, you want players to be engaged and here they, they kind of did that. We talked about it a little bit last week. I think it was off camera. There was, there's 24 possible endings to this game, which is huge. Uh, and players have actually gone through cause it did release on April 12th, I believe. Uh, there's been a ton of people that have gone through and figured out exactly what choices you need to make all the way through to get all 24 endings. And I think that's kind of cool, but it's, I like the idea of this choose your own adventure. I like the idea of this choice will have an impact. And then I like the idea of, but it's just a story. So you can go back and retell the story of however you want. I think that's really cool. I loved it. I, I'm looking forward to playing it, which won't be right away, but I'm going to wait and pick it up later on. But I really loved how the story was changing as you were playing. I loved oh, the art style was spectacular. It, again, everything that I saw about it was, made me want to play. And it's one of those things where, in, again, uh, 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 some roguelikes I'm not into as much because it is the same thing over and over again you just you get better at it kind of thing sure and to me that's a waste of time that's not how this felt i mean you can branch off so well obviously like you said 24 different endings so you can branch off so much and get a different experience for each of those playthroughs and i love that it just it felt really really cool to me Now, on top of the story and the choices that you're going to make throughout it, it's not just like a choose-your-own-adventure game like you would normally see like Telltale or things like that. It actually has a very deep combat system as well, and the controls are very, very tight. And they wanted it to emphasize that that action side of the action-adventure sort of thing. So you have Arkham-style combat with a combo meter, uh, you can dodge, you can grab enemies, there's a hook shot, you can throw them. There's four different magical swords uh, that you can use at leisure that each have a different effect and can be altered throughout the choices you make in the story. Uh, there's a countering system that is very, they said is very similar to what you see in like Metal Gear Rising uh, and the parry systems for, again, Souls-like games. Uh, it's very snappy, it's very quick. Uh, the combat is brutal and short-lived, despite the art style being very, you know, over-the-top cartoony almost. It's a surprisingly deep and also at times surprisingly dark game. And I think that's also very cool because of that juxtaposition. It's You have these these light, bright, vibrant colors and this game world where, you know, oh, you can go save the princess or you can contribute to her murder. Like, it's... Just, Everything I've seen about this since the game has come out has been anything from I, I don't think I've seen anybody say anything bad about it. And yeah. that says something to me. Yeah. OK, let's move on. I found a Kickstarter a while back and I showed Joe, obviously, because I thought it was freaking <laughs> yes, awesome. Yes. Sadly, it might not get funded. Oh, uh, no. Dude was only asking for um, 8,000 pounds or euros. I think it's euros. euros. And uh He's only at a little over 4,000 last time I checked. So, but the game is called Healer's Quest. <laughs> now, we play healers, so we're used to this. 
And what was funny is that as I'm listening to the dude, uh, Pablo Coma, who was talking about it, I mean, he is working on this in his spare time and it's kind of a labor of love, but it's you're the healer of a bunch of fucking noobs. <laughs> Luckily, they're all NPCs. It's not online, but you're healing these jackasses that when they die, they blame you. They rush in when they shouldn't. They stand in Why shit they shouldn't do. And it is basically everything that we literally have to live with. For the last 12 years. Real people. And one would think, well, why would you want to play a game of this? Because they're not real people. It's poking fun at it. And it's still using healing mechanics of who to buff, who to heal, things like that. And you have different spells you can use. You can equip different spells. There's all kinds of it's fairly in-depth for a simple little game. But again, for those of us that actually enjoy healing... This pokes fun at it in a way that I thought was absolutely hysterical. And while I try to avoid healing pugs because of these things, I'm more than willing to play a silly game like this that pokes, again, pokes fun at it and and makes it difficult in a roguelike manner, but using elements of a system that we actually enjoy, that system being healing mechanics which tend to be fairly common across most games so i know that when i saw this i thought freaking awesome and i don't know joe where did you stand on it i love everything about it mostly because it pokes fun at it and it does so in a actual funny way like the the quips that are back and forth it's very enjoyable and i like the fact that it's lighthearted because that's something that has not has been a point of frustration for us for years and finally being able to go back and just laugh at it like it's a, it's almost like a vindicated moment. Yeah, I thought it <laughs> like was awesome. I'm, I, I want it. I want, I like, I want this game. I want this to succeed and I'm sad that it might not because I would love to play this game. Yeah. So if anybody is interested, go to Kickstarter. I'll actually have the link in the show notes as well, but it's in on Kickstarter under healers quest. There's only nine days to go and it's not like they're asking for a lot. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely doable at this point still. So yeah. this is definitely the type of thing that Kickstarter was made for yes. because like I loved like just him talking about the game. You could tell how much he cares about this and said it's him. He did the programming. He did the art. He did the music. He did the writing. It's this is entirely his. It's a labor of love. If it doesn't get funded, he's still going to make it. He's still going to work on it. Just the funding will allow him to do it easier and faster. Yeah. And I, this is something I really want to see succeed. I like it too because, again, it is like you're saying. It's just one dude doing it kind of thing. And it is very much a, a passion to get this particular game out. And with tons of AAA games coming out that aren't always that great and all of the bad news that we keep hearing from in the gaming community periodically, something like this, man, I would love to see this succeed and this guy kind of feel good about what he's doing. So mm-hmm. there's also, did you see the uh, Dresden Files board game? Ba- oh, my God. Oh, oh, my God. I want it so bad. And like it looks so fun. And $69 is actually a fair price for everything they're asking for with the base game and the three and expansions. The yeah. It's just more than I'm willing to spend on anything right now. But I want it so bad. I, 
I'm actually considering it. <laughs> I, I should not. I My finger was on the button, oh, and then I went, wait. I have the page up. <laughs> <laughs> Tristan came in and went, Dresden Files, what is that? <laughs> I went, it's a board game. So I even told the wife, because she actually loves the Dresden Files uh, novels. She she actually, I've got a, a bunch of the audio ones as well, so she's been listening to those as well. Mm-hmm. And then we loved the series, the first season that they did, well, the only season. Yeah, they did, the only. Which Why do you so love shows that only get one season, Roger? Because they're awesome. Oh, please. <laughs> did you ever watch that one? Yeah. Oh, it was brilliant. I, I, I'd, I'd seen the series, and then I went into the bookstore one day, and I went, hey, there's books. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been hooked ever since. Yeah, no kidding. So I might wind up picking it up. Because I already told Karen, and she went, that sounds great. Went, there you go. That That is permission right there is what that is. <laughs> like, and, and you compare it to also at the same time, the Dark Souls board game is on Kickstarter. Yes. And it's like $150 for the base game. Because it's got all like these crazy statues. And, like, and I was like, really, guys? Like, I understand you want to do some cool stuff, but do you really... Like 150 freaking dollars for the base game. Yeah. And there's like, you know, four or five expansions that they've unlocked that are another $15, $20 each. I was like, you guys are insane. Yeah. Well, I might be getting the Dresden ones. <laughs> um, you found this. Uh, I might be getting the Dresden one too. too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've got another 20 some days to figure it out. <laughs> Actually, hey, I listened to freaking Alicia's podcast there, and she's planning on spending money now anyway. So if she, but if it's she spends right, money on wonderful games for her friends. No, 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 she does not. No, she does not. No, <laughs> no, she's a mean, bitter little old woman because there's nothing funny about what she did. You have have you played it yet? No, <laughs> you don't know. You don't know. Okay, it might be your favorite game, folks. How dare you judge? As you know, Vince's better half has a video cast. We had her and her co-host Sushi on the podcast here when we did our thing on Otomes and Japanese visual novels and whatnot. Go back and listen to episode 15. It starts with, I didn't realize I actually started listening to 15, like immediately when it came out. And I was watching the the. I didn't hold on. I'm not done. Hold hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. So I didn't finish watching it. It's 15. So it was minimized as well. And then I they were recording 16 when I got the Twitter messages from her, but (laughs) I didn't get them immediately because I was watching TV with Karen. It wasn't until I came and sat down that I got them, and then made my way into the the stream. So then, of course. All hell blew up in there. And then I went back and I listened to it from the start and then realized what was going on. But what's funny is that yesterday I continued. I realized that I still had 15 queued up and I hadn't finished listening to it. (laughs) And so as I was doing some other stuff, I said, oh, shit, I need to finish listening to this because I have listened to all of their podcasts every episode. So I I kept listening. And then all of a sudden I hear her talking about it. And I was like, you little bitch. Like, this was not a spur of the moment. You planned this over the course of weeks to jab me with this goddamn game. And she tries to blame it on me. I was like, no, no, no. There is evidence that this was right. <laughs> So what's, what's funny is I was watching the VOD because uh, I had game night last Friday, so I couldn't watch live. And they got to that point. I switched from YouTube over to Twitch because now on Twitch VODs you get the chat oh, replay. Yeah. So I can see you in chat. <laughs> I might have been a little loud, <laughs> just a little loud. 
but yes, if you're interested, but, it was. But what is the fabulous game you 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 have obtained? So so they gifted me this ridiculous Otome game called Pub Encounters, where you are a woman picking up middle-aged men, and apparently there's a hair slider in case your proposed men aren't furry enough for you. No, no crazy, colorful hairstyles. This is this is your thing, Raj. We'll see. Real rough and rugged men, just like you like it. The, the <laughs> I, I feel that I have to stream it for them because they went out of their way and spent real money, and it's not like it was a cheap five dollar game. So I will. This is stream a quality that. product. No, no, it's not. And there's going to be. I'm going to make sure that tells me it's quality. I'm going to be plenty medicated. And have a couple of glasses of wine in me when I play this. Right. So that's normal every day. So this should be an interesting stream. Because here's the thing. She also said if I got it for Joe. And I was like, no, no, no. Roger will play it if for no other reason than to have a great podcast segment. <laughs> Joe will just refuse to play it because he's a jerk. No, I actually have a standing, a standing thing where somebody buys me a game. I have to play it. This is how I played uh, the pony game about magical crystals that my raid leader bought me because he thought I wouldn't play it. I almost clicked return. Oh, the refuse <laughs> button. I was like this close. And it was as I was listening to them talking, I'm going, ah, shit, I can't do that. But sushi, I'll get you. <laughs> and pizza, I'll get you too. There will be revenge of some sorts. Definitely. Okay, let's get back to our goddamn podcast. <laughs> All right, you found this thing on Eve, and you were uh, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, talk about Eve for a while. Uh, yeah, I, Eve is a game that we've talked about a lot in kind of a third-party observer <laughs> way because none of us have played it to any significant amount to actually experience all the cool shit that we're heard we've heard what is actually. In the game. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I played that pretty extensively for a long time. You bet. Really? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm the one that got lost immediately. Yeah, yeah. You're the, you're the one that sailed out to the ass end of the universe. <laughs> yep. My guy's still there. <laughs> like, all the bodies are just floating dead <laughs> in the cabin. <laughs> but yeah, I linked you guys a YouTube video that kind of recounts one of the epic battles that took place over the years of the game where this one faction was basically almost completely wiped out, but they, you know, were able to hold on to a very small, like, uh, I don't want to say freelancer, but uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not pirate, but the... Melsec. Whatever. But, you know, yeah. a very small elite force that just kept nipping away at the other factions that had defeated them until they were actually able to, you know, steal a bit of uh, real estate and this huge epic siege where they wiped out a fleet, you know, five times their size. Cool-ass story. Which is the point that uh, there's actually a book that came out a couple weeks ago uh, mm -hmm. called Empires of Eve, written by Andrew Groen. Groen? Great. Don't ask me to pronounce his name. But uh, he's been a game journalist for a number of years, and he did a Kickstarter for this book a couple of years ago because he was always fascinated with this stuff. And he has spent years mm -hmm. researching all of these epic battles that have gone on in the game. And if the rest of this book is as cool as this one little five minute story was, I really need to get my hands on it. Well, not, not only that, the book actually spans a, a conflict that happened, I think it's 2007 to 2009, if I remember correctly. <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, Eve's been around since 2003, folks. Uh, yeah. 
so I'd really be interested to hear both sides of it because back during that time frame, I was busy selling ice to the Russians and Goon Squad. I liked this, but as interesting as I'm certain the book would be, the video was spectacular. Like they need to do get a Patreon going just so that they can do more videos where they recounted because it was like watching the History Channel kind of thing where they're going yeah. off talking about the years in between and the Red Russians doing this and then showing all the videos of shit happening. It was like, God damn, this is seriously it was like watching the History Channel documentary kind of thing. So it was cool as shit. Well, it also makes you realize exactly how much has been going on oh, yeah. in EVE. Like continues to go on. Yeah, none of that. Like this is you could not write this conflict exactly. What I liked is that as well. It is very much a story of the the one force that gets nearly obliterated, but those few that remain Mm -hmm. get stronger and better over years until they can fight back and win. So it's that it's the type of story that we like. And what's funny is that it shows you how when left to our own devices, we will do things that conform to like script movie script ideas kind of thing. It's like, that's (laughs) Mm -hmm. in our nature. We will just fight and fight and fight until we can regain that, which we lost or, or different ideas like that. And I just thought it was so cool that again, you couldn't write this. This is, well, you could, but it's, you know, it's, it's just so freaking awesome. It, and what's funny is the book came out right at the same time that another one of these huge weeks long epic siege battles was going on in the game. And he's like, well, I guess it's time to work on the next one. <laughs> well, yeah, as Mitanni's empire is burning down around him. I see. That's the thing about this game, too, is. One of the main reasons why I have not gone back into it is that you could lose yourself in that game. I mean, when you're looking at these battles that are taking, like, not hours, in some cases, not even days, (laughs) like, you're talking (laughs) weeks, I I don't have the time for that. But I know... Sorry, boss, I'm in the middle of a big siege right now. I can't make it The goddamn Russians are sneaking up on us. What do you want me to do? And, uh, and so I, I just, I would not be able to do it. I, and and I know that I wouldn't be able to tear myself away from the screen. I would want to continue being a part of this historic friggin' battle. So I, I just, I can't see. And that's why I decided when I played the game originally that I was joining an engineer and supply corp. And that's what I was basically a mining vessel with teeth. And that's all I did. I sold to people and I stayed out of the conflict. I fueled the conflict like a like an arms dealer, like providing stuff to both sides and making myself a little money. <laughs> OK, like, and you call me mean. You're an actual <laughs> that's Bond totally villain. how I, I was a Bond villain. That's how I did it. All right. Sticking with intergalactic games. Did you guys watch that video for No Man's Sky? It showed quite a bit more. It was on uh, the PlayStation blog. Um, I've been following a lot of videos on it. Like I've been watching every everything they've been putting out. This showed a significant amount more stuff. And what was very telling, which is what we've kind of seen hinted and we've seen a little bit more of, but this really showed how you can spend weeks on a single planet, one fucking planet, and have a blast 
cataloging everything, discovering everything, mining, mining underground and well, obviously, and, and discovering hidden tunnel systems where there might have been civilizations and all kinds of other stuff as well. And then again, that's, that's the one planet just a hop, skip and a jump away from that. There might be moons wherein you can do a lot of the same thing and you haven't even left your solar system yet. Now that's one of the things that we talked about, obviously beforehand, just the, the insane scope of the game, but it's as we're seeing more and more of the micromanaging your, your game time and what you're going to do, be it just exploring or if you get essentially stuck on a planet where you need to go do some form of crafting in order to get the components that you need to protect your ship against cold or whatever it may be kind of thing so that you can then not just get off the planet, but maybe even make it a little bit further towards the center. The scope of that micro game, which is not micro when you're talking about it's the entire fucking planet, but that's what it is, <laughs> is ridiculous. Again, you could spend crap loads of hours doing nothing but exploring and having fun on a single goddamn planet. One planet out of billions and billions. I, again, the video was, I'm, I'm no doubt going to be buying it for both PC and VR when it eventually <laughs> comes to VR, just so that I could play the shit out of it all the time. I was, I was so impressed. I, I, don't, I don't think we can say much more much about more, the game yeah. than we haven't said over the last two years. And then sticking with the PS4, again, on the PlayStation blog, I'd seen this. Did you guys see the video for Shadwin? No, this one I missed. This is a stealth game where you're an assassin and you're on the way to kill a king. And then there's an orphan girl named Lily that you come across, and she was caught stealing. And so you decide to help her along. And then the game can be either deadly or not. So you can choose if you're going to kill people along your way to the king or not. And it very much is a game of stealth. You're, you're seen, you're dead. It's that simple. And so there's a lot of different things that you can do in order to accomplish your, your goals as you're going along kind of thing. But I mean, it, when they say it can be deadly, they're not joking. <laughs> they are not messing around there. It is some pretty violent ass shit, but stylish as hell the gameplay looked cool you can rewind as well if something didn't work mm -hmm. out as you wanted kind of thing so elements of life is strange it was really cool i enjoyed the dynamics between those two lead characters and again the the it was stylish as hell it, it really looked cool I, I i'm actually looking forward to playing that also picked up on a bit of a dishonored vibe here. Yes, yes, very with, much. With them talking about yeah. you can choose how lethal you want to be, and that will affect you know, the child that you're traveling with. I was like, I've played that game. Well, I mean, <laughs> but that's cool. It makes sense. This is from Frozen Bite. These are the same people that made Try and Try and Two, like the Try and series, right? And uh, I think it was the other one, Shadowground. So I'm not terribly surprised that the characters have a really awesome interplay, and. Yeah, I like I hadn't heard of this and now it's on my radar and this looks like something I completely would play. Yeah. What did you think of uh Too Dark that I showed you? Very interesting, especially since Alone in the Dark was uh the original. It was one of my fa like favorite yeah. games at the time. So, uh Did you play the latest one? No. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking that's a good thing. Anyway, uh <laughs> Gloomywood Studios is uh 
the new studio that's headed up by uh, I'm going to butcher this Friedrich uh, Reynal. And uh, this is an interesting concept because in survival horror games, it's always your life that you're sort of wagering with, right? Like you're the one that's in danger. It's you that you're concerned about here. You're trying to save a bunch of missing children from the clutches of a demented serial killer. Demented that's serial killers. <laughs> Plural killers. Sorry, killers. <laughs> so I think that's kind of cool because we saw, I saw glimpses of this when I was playing the park uh, where you're going after the, your kid, your missing kid in this, ridiculously horrible theme park that's the spawning point of Cthulhu here it's the same kind of concept because what's more frightening than your own life it's the innocent life of children that you need to protect and I think that's kind of cool I also like the fact that it's a mix of stealth horror and adventure so it encourages you to explore I like the fact that there are hidden doors Uh, it's an isometric top-down view uh, which is, you know, kind of a thing for these type of games now. But, yeah, I had not heard about this game until you had brought it to my attention. But this looks like something I'm probably going to be picking up. Just be, I'm super intrigued so far. And the art style is is interesting. It's not uh, cutesy. It's very almost like Darkest Dungeon style. It's kind of yeah, gloomy and, and that. dark. Yeah, It's dark, but... Darkest Dungeon I found but was not quite a bit more stylish. Dark. That's why I said kind of. Yeah. I didn't say that it was. But, like, look at the concept art and stuff like that. It's It's got that same sort of vibe to it. Not not nearly as much, but... I like a lot of the things that they're doing, though. I like the attention to sound. Again, we keep talking about this for horror games, how important mm-hmm. it is. But to the point where you can even see sound in the darkness kind of thing. Like, there's a the, lot of things... The blue bubbles, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of things that they're doing with sound that are important in a horror game. And... As ridiculous as it is to have this weird town of serial killers, it's kind of just this fun way of making everything horrible. Like there's you you're not gonna feel safe anywhere. And what they were saying too is like it's it's going to be difficult for you to get into the home, find the kids wherever they may be, but now you need to get out. With all those kids in tow as well. Scared kids who are making lots of noise. Yeah, so there's a lot of really fun, cool elements that they're tossing in there. And and so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in playing it. I I wish the art style was a little different, I, I which isn't to, to slam it, because I know they put a lot of hard work into it kind of thing. It's just not necessarily my thing. But there are enough cool little twists on it to, to keep me interested. So it, it, it was interesting for sure. And then lastly, All Walls Must Fall. Vince. All Walls Must Fall, another future cyberpunk game. Can never have Apparently, it, in addition to Souls, cyberpunk is another one of this year's buzzwords. Give me. <laughs> yes, this is from In Between Games, uh, which is actually a company formed by people who used to work at Jaeger, the company that made Spec Ops The Line, which if you haven't played, yeah. do that. Yeah. It's amazing. As they call it, it's a tech noir spy thriller. It takes place in Berlin in the year 2089, but it's a alternate future version of Berlin where the wall never fell. So it's got this very different style and very different tone and mood from what we've seen in other cyberpunk games. It's, you know, it, it's not as, hey, the future is awesome. It's definitely a little more jackbooted, but 
set in this club scene where, you know, people are able to kind of be themselves and be a little more free than they can be out in the outside world. They describe it as XCOM meets Braid because it has these tactical elements combined with the ability to rewind time, which apparently is another big thing for the year 2016. Uh, but it, it's not just, you know, hey, OK, I've screwed that up. Rewind time. There's a lot of other interesting elements that they're doing here. One of the big things for me is that they've called it social stealth, which, you know, it's not just hiding around a corner. It's being able to blend in with the crowd. They even said being able to act in time with the music is going to be very important. You're in a club scene. And of course, all I can think of is John Wick, where he's going through the club and timing his headshots with the beat of the music <laughs> so nobody can hear the gun going off. And now I need that to be in this game because it's all I can think about. It was cool as hell. I mm-hmm. really thought for, that for, was interesting. For a game this early in development, it looks very cool. And I like the concept. I really like the concept. Ironically, I was just watching uh, a couple of documentaries on the Berlin Wall as well as World War II and different things like that. And and uh, and so then I see this game and I was like, Jesus, that is cool as hell. Because, again, it's easy to do that. Okay, this is set in the future, and it's always, well, not always, but most of the time, some post-apocalyptic setting where, you know, everything has gone to shit. Whereas this is, society has continued. There's definitely, obviously, problems. But, I mean, the fact that, again, you're you're doing these club scenes and different things like that, it's very much, it kind of has that feel of, like, Russia now with the different clubs and different things like that. I thought it was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. So that's about it. Any uh, parting thoughts on any other games? If we keep getting more cyberpunk and Shadowrun stuff, I'm going to be A-OK this year, and you're not going to see me for a while. I'm not complaining. Yep. All right. Stick around. We're going to have a feature from Joe on the Illidan novel. (laughs) See, now you got no choice. You have to record it. It's in the show. Damn. (laughs) Twist my arm to talk. Now it's canon. Now it's in there. All right. You can find the show notes at For The Lore. We will live stream next week on Monday at ForTheLore.com slash live at 7 p.m. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter at For The Lore or individually. Joe is Loaders at J. Vince is Simonian. And I am Zen Buddhist. And with that, we'll let you go. There's also iTunes and Stitcher. It's written right in front of me. I could have read the fucking thing. It's right there. (laughs) But I skipped right over it because I was on a roll. Good job, Marty. No, I didn't screw it up. No, 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 no. I just omitted something. I did not screw it up. Yeah, that's like point two of a Marty. That's not even. Not even. Shut up. Today I would like to talk about the Illidan novel by William King, the latest in the series of novels for World of Warcraft. I'm going to attempt to avoid spoilers as much as possible and just give you a general idea of the book, as I feel that if I go too far into depth, it will just ruin it, and I think it's a book everybody should read. This book is unique for two distinct reasons, first of which is that it's not a prequel to the upcoming expansion, Legion. Instead, it's a prequel to an old expansion, The Burning Crusade. All the events that take place in this book happen from before the time we reach Illidan and The Burning Crusade up to that point as the end point. It's very unique because it goes so far back to what is essentially already established canon from the game. Very, very cool to me.
The second is that the book being written by William King takes on a very dark tone, something that most of the other books, while dark for fantasy's sake, haven't been quite so dark. This might have something to do with the fact that William King is most known for writing novels in the Warhammer fantasy and 40k universe, which is where we get the title Grimdark, or the genre where it was originally coined. And Mr. King has contributed to that. Again, two very big distinctions for this book. The first thing that I really enjoy about this book is that it gives us a lot of framework that was missing from years ago. Anybody who played through the original Burning Crusade would know that while Illidan was supposed to be this ultimate goal for us, we never really knew why other than a bunch of people told us he was bad. Here, we get to see everything that he was doing while we were making our way there. Every deal he cut, every interaction he had, and every sort of plan he started putting into place. It fills in story gap that has existed for 10 years at this point, really. It's really, really nice to see some of those questions get answered that maybe you didn't even know were there to ask. It also makes me feel a little bit better about that hollow victory that we had 10 years ago. Standing atop the Black Temple and finally defeating Illidan didn't feel quite like the triumph that every other final expansion boss has felt like. They weren't, they were all these big bats. They were all these giant evils that had been interacting with us throughout the entire game. But Illidan was never like that. He maybe showed up once or twice and explains why here in this book. Bottom line, Illidan had more important things to worry about. Case in point, creating the Demon Hunters and trying to set up a plan to defeat the Legion. Now, the Demon Hunters are another great aspect of this book. It does give us some framework as to how they were created. Now, that's not to say that we haven't already gotten some context in the game world. There are several Demon Hunters that we interact with, whether as bosses or NPCs that we do quests for. But here we learn a lot more about the process. What we learn is that each Demon Hunter is inherently flawed in some way. Yes, they are all elves, but they've all lost something so close to their core being that they teeter on the edge of insanity. And they go seeking vengeance for what they've lost, what the Burning Legion has taken from them. And Illidan is the vehicle from which they wish to grab this. Vandal, who is the one of the main characters that the story is told through the eyes of, had lost his son and wife. He had watched them consumed, literally eaten in front of him by a fellhound, by a demon. He stalks to the Black Temple, bypasses all security, climbs to the top, and instead of trying to kill Illidan, pledges his blades. Illidan promises him revenge as he does all of the other demon hunters and demon hunter wannabes. And you see exactly what they go through to, to basically be these hunters. They're forced to relive their traumas in a very intimate way. Not only do they consume the powers of demons, but inside of them lies the demon that wronged them, summoned and then murdered, and then they are forced to consume that flesh of that demon 
and then relive those moments of their loss, whether it was their child, their lover, their husband. It's just very powerful. And the way the description that William King puts into this is very heart-wrenching, very heavy, but also very well done. You get to see how each demon hunter is affected and why they might have been a little bit crazy. We saw a little bit of this in game with Leo Theris the Blind. Now we can kind of understand why, and it makes a whole lot more sense. Again, I'm just scratching the tip of the iceberg here. This is just surface stuff. There are several chapters devoted to nothing but the creation of demon hunters, and their story is unique from the point of them seeking this point of vengeance, their creation, to becoming the ultimate weapon against the Legion. The other side that the story is told through is through Maeve's shadow song, the warden that was set to look over Illidan Stormrange, who had her wardens murdered and by Tyrande when she released Illidan way back when. And you get to see her quest for vengeance. We always knew that she had been stalking Illidan, but we didn't know to what extent. What I thought was interesting is we get to see exactly how manipulative she is, how she tries to push her personal quest and vendetta onto everybody around her. It's a very interesting characterization because we think of her as this big hero throughout all of the previous expansions and every game interaction we've had, as well as in the books. And in one of the more recent novels, Wolfheart, She's a little bit unhinged, and we never quite understand why. This sets the framework for that perfectly. It's not because she ultimately captured Illidan and her purpose is over. While that may be a small part of it, how she got there and everything she endured to get there is what defines that insanity, defines that sort of headspace that she's in. And it's very interesting to see how she interacts with such wonderful NPCs like Adal, uh, Akama, uh, and even other, like when she finally discovers the demon hunters, when she interacts with Vandal. It's a very good characterization and gives a lot more backstory and depth to her and what she went through. Then there's Akama. And Akama is, again, the leader of the Ashtung Broken. He's a shaman of great power, a wizard of great power. They never really quite define what he is. He he definitely dives into the weird arts of the the Jedi, and he bridges that gap between the two uh, sorcerers and or wizards and uh, and shaman. They show everything that he went through. Now we knew that he betrayed Illidan in the end. He was our ally trying to overthrow Illidan, but we find out why he went to Illidan not as you know, a big, great deceit. It was Illidan says he's going to go and clear out Magtheridon from Karabor Temple, and then we can go and, you know, cleanse it. And he seems pretty earnest in his hate of the Legion. I'll go ahead and throw my lot in with him just long enough to get Karabor back from him. And then you see the twists and the betrayals that he endures, not just from Illidan, but from everybody in the retinue and all the politically political movements he has to make, all the deals he has to strike, and all of the shadow games he has to play, all to try to get the place of his homeland back. It's very powerful, and a very good, deep look at Akama as a character. Lastly, 
as the name of the book implies, the other point of view is through Illidan. And when I say that we see what he's done, you get to see that he has seen such great horror in the universe. He knows what has to be done. He knows what needs to be done to save not just Azeroth, but the entirety of the world. It is incredibly important. I was very impressed with not only how much they dove into those decisions, but his thought process and what he went through and his struggling with his internal demons. It was really well done. All points of view in this book were not black and white. There was no clear-cut villain or hero, aside from the Burning Legion being the ultimate evil. Everything operated with a sort of moral ambiguity or gray area that is lacking from a lot of fantasy novels and a lot of uh, books of adventure. I was thoroughly impressed. Everything about this book sets the framework of this dark future that that is looming over us as characters, that's looming over us as players or people that have enjoyed this franchise for over a decade. And William King brings it to life in such a way that is absolutely phenomenal. I highly recommend this book if you've ever been interested in Warcraft, fantasy, or even just dark adventure. It is well written. It is well composed. The way that everything is put together just flows so beautifully. I cannot recommend this enough. Out of all of the books that I've read for Warcraft, this is by far my favorite. Do yourself a favor. Pick up the book Illidan Stormrage by William King and enjoy. Thank you for listening to For the Lore. Each week, the show is broadcast live on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. Stop by forthelore.com slash live to join the conversation and have your thoughts discussed on the show. If you'd like to hear more from the guys, check out Comic Book Informer, a weekly podcast from Vince and Roger, as well as Popcorn Ronin, a bi-weekly movie, TV, and anime podcast. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, ManelliJamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs.